Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Green, and today we're going to have another jam-packed and incredible episode for you guys. So sit back and enjoy on this nice Monday before Halloween what we're going to have in store for you. No, no horror movie topics or scary movie topics. Well, that is something scary, but we are going to be discussing... You guessed it, more of the Israel war because they have finally gone into Gaza and it is still roiling domestic politics in both America and Europe. So we're going to be discussing that today as we have for the weeks past. It's actually going to be a lot of the similar topics because then we're going to talk about the House Speaker race and one more topic before we get to our many, many cognitively questions we have today. We're getting more and more cognitively questions. Cognitively, the cognitively are taking over America one question at a time. So we are have a lot for this episode today. So we're going to go to Israel. Um, war started. I mean, what else can you more say about that? It's too early to tell what's what's necessarily going to happen there. But I mean, they are doing the ground invasion. Some people were like, well, they'll never do a ground invasion. And like they had to do a ground invasion and they are doing it. How long it'll last? How, you know, how how much effort will they put in there? How many more troops? You know, that's anyone's guess. But they're going full into it. Whether this will expand to Lebanon. We'll discuss that later on in the podcast. I really want to discuss a thing that I've been seeing a lot on our side. And it's debating whether to tie Hamas and the pro-Palestinians to BLM and to domestic left-wing movements. And I've seen seeing this a lot. I mean, Chris Rufo had a bunch of tweets saying about this. is like, it's time to connect BLM to Hamas or to them. We need to delegitimize it. He said in a tweet... I'm going to read the tweet uh, full. It's like, conservatives need to create a strong association between Hamas, BLM, DSA, and academic decolonization in the public mind. Connect the dots, then attack, delegitimize, and discredit. Make the center-left disavow them. Make them political untouchables. And I've been seeing this a lot more from our side and how they want to cover this. And Matt Walsh has been saying this. is like He's talking about how they're anti-white. This is a part of the anti-white movement. And some a few other big figures are also going with that. And it's like what, based on these pro-Palestinian protesters are saying themselves. When they go out there, they're like, this is for uh, the indigenous rights. This is for blacks. There's queers for Palestine. There's lesbians for Palestine. I'm sure there's trans for Palestine. All the intersectional groups are coming out in force for Palestine. So, you know, it's just relying on the words that they're speaking to say this. But I think there's an issue here happening with two things. One, the point is to pressure the center left to disavow them, to cut them off. Even though the center left is coming down hard on these guys when academically, you know, but they're they're in a bit of a pickle here. They really don't want to come down on them hard like they would the far right. Because they see these people as having a moral claims. They see these people as their own side. And this creates a more difficult predicament for them. Now, if the center left are Zionists, then there is no uh, moral qualms there. They think these people are evil and they want them crushed. But for the non-Zionist center left, there's a bit of discomfort around this. They don't like the far left. You know, they don't want to condemn the far left too much, and they're certainly not making the political untouchables. And also, they're not making the connection 
to Hamas and BLM and DSA and academic wokeness. There's no connection there. They see these people as something apart from that. And they are not pushing back against leftism or wokeness in general. They're just focusing on these people who criticize anti-Israel. That's where it all comes down to, is that there's no general cutting off of all the anti-white stuff going on in the universities. And you can see this even with the donors. The donors, you know, they, these universities have been anti-white for years and years and years. They've been pushing horrible stuff against whites, against and a lot of other, the American majority. And they haven't given a shit. Haven't frankly given a shit. They didn't give a shit about any of these protests. They didn't give a shit about the BLM riots that happened on college campuses. They just didn't care. All they care about is the fact that, oh, there's some students that are criticizing Israel. And it's like, you know, we, we do live in a free country. This is, they have a right to criticize one side in a foreign policy argument. You know, this is ultimately a foreign policy argument. And it, you're essentially saying, okay, if you take this one side in it, then you deserve to be banished, censored, ostracized from public life. And even if these guys are filthy leftists, you know, what is happening with that? And so I don't I don't think it's it's winning over the center left, but I don't even think that's the intended audience. The intended audience is to a lot of these Zionists who are on the right, who are controlling the right. It's like the Ben Shapiro types and those people. And it's like to say, oh, well, you know, we this is Israel, but we also need to focus, refocus on our domestic issues as well. And some people have accused, I think, you know, have said that this is an attempt by conservatives to lure back some of the dissident right back to the fold and get them back to supporting Israel, which that could be for some people. But I think the ultimate thing is that a lot of these guys like Walsh and Rufo, they don't talk about foreign policy. And even with Walsh, Walsh has been saying like, we shouldn't go to war, blah, blah, blah. It's really just their way of posting through this to get their own issues that they generally care about or to go into a me too thing and it's like saying like oh i really hate these palestinian protesters too because they are associated with the domestic problems i i don't like and so it's more posting through it some people may be deploying this but i it's unclear how many of young right wingers are fully anti-israel i mean there's a there's certainly a demographic online <laughs> that's for sure but it's unclear how much that is translates into you know, voter blocks and stuff of that sort. And for, you know, I've said this a lot before, but the only, among Republicans, there's only two Republicans that are willing to criticize Israel, elected Republicans, and that is Massey and Rand Paul. And sort of Trump, but Trump is like, is, it's like his criticism of Israel is that they don't support him enough. He did all these things. You know, it's, you know, valid criticism, but it's a little bit different than the, uh, criticism that Massey and uh, Rand Paul make, but it's not reflected in any of the politicians. The politicians are just lining up. Republican politicians swear their undying loyalty to Israel right now. And so you don't really see it among the movers and shakers within the party and even quite with the conservative movement, even though there are more conservative commentators who are ex uh, going unorthodox and expressing heterodox views on this issue, you know, Candace Owens is a big example of that. Candace Owens has been uh, very opposed to war effort. 
She's even uh, said some things about the Palestinian protesters that has outraged other conservatives. And so you do, and Tim Cass is also going along with the line that the neocons don't really like. There's a few others too um, that are that are spreading this view, but it's hard to gauge how much it is. Maybe, I don't know how, I don't know, I, I don't quite believe that that is like, it's just solely a ploy to win over a certain group of people online. I think it's more that these guys just need to find a thing to post for and during this conflict because the conflict makes themselves uncomfortable because I think people like Matt Walsh realize they can't go full on anti-war because Candace Owens is already in a lot of trouble right now for going in that direction. And there's a there's a chance that I could see I could see Daily Wire fire her over her comments re regarding Palestine and Israel. And so Matt Walsh, you know, is more of a company man than Candace Owens. It does want to go in the direction. So he feels content just to stick to, you know, BLM as Hamas and that type of stuff. And the, you know, the worrying about decolonization rhetoric. And I think it's one thing to make clear is that the, that pro-Palestinian side wants to make that connection. They are open to that connection. They want to see themselves as part of the general left and that all their issues that they care about from LGBT rights, blacks uh, stuff, and open borders is and decolonization, all ties in with the Palestine stuff. And the Palestine stuff is just another issue, a part of that uh, intersectionality. And so the left wants to make that connection. So, you know, it's obvious to point it out. But I think it's the center right uh, doesn't really care about the connection as much. I mean, they're fine with it. They'll be like, oh, OK, yeah, sure. Uh, BLM supports Hamas. But they don't want to make this about anti-white racism. They don't want to make this about any domestic issues that our audience cares about. They want to make this solely about themselves. They want to make this about Israel and Jews and anti-Semitism. They do not want anti-right racism to come into this. They don't want arguments about mass immigration to come into this, even though all these people who are protesting a mass came here due to mass immigration. They don't want to care about that. The sole issue they want to focus on is Israel and the right for Israel to do whatever it wants. And that's it. They don't want to have any other discussion about this. This is all about themselves. And you could have seen this when Ben Shapiro was lashing out at Tucker Carlson for trying to, you know, to bring up the border in this issue. He's like, well, what happened with Israel is terrible, but what about our border that's bringing all these drugs that kill Americans, et cetera, et cetera. And as I did, you know, Shapiro got so mad. He's like, this is not about the border. This is about Israel. Israel is far more important than your issues. This is the most important issue of the world today. And how dare you bring up your issues and to what I care about? Shut up and dribble. You know, that's like his whole thing that he cares about. That's all the Ben Shapiro and them. They don't want any ties to this. They don't want any other discussion. So tying it in, it's not really, you know, persuading the center left. I mean, they are taking actions against some of these people, but it's solely limited to Israel criticisms. These guys can criticize whites all they want. They can call them savages, disgusting people, call for ethnic cleansing of them. But once they bring up Israel, then that's a problem. It's basically creating parameters around their speech is that they can be woke as possible as long as they don't bring up Israel. That's 
the center left's position on this. And the center right is also similar. <laughs> it's that, you know, they you know, they'll complain and whine about, you know, some anti-white racism and some woke stuff, but the Israel stuff crosses a line that, you know, generates more of their energy and and activism and agitation against the left because that's far more important than, to them than in anything else. So I don't think really the connection is working, even though it is what the protesters are they themselves saying. It's uh, for directing the right towards this issue. It's it's not really working. <laughs> it really is instead of directing, instead of connecting and discrediting all these other left-wing elements. Instead, it's just encouraging the right to embrace a pro-censorship line, which is utterly stupid, which is what I argued last week, is that all these right-wingers and conservatives now think that it's epic to ban campus anti-Semitism. And, I, you know, I had so many people in my mentions talking about how I have a loser mindset that I cannot handle all these winning we're doing with Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis banning some campus group that is accused of being anti-Israel and him promising to crack down harder on the critics of, anti of Israel on campuses and possibly elsewhere. And I don't know how this is a win. It's like, you know, once you expand hate speech laws and expand, you know, restrictions against whatever you perceive as hate as bigotry, we're going to be the number one targets for that. They're not going to target the left. It's you're giving left-wing attorneys and bureaucrats the power to censor us. And that's what would happen at a, at a university or in any who's anyone who's going to be interpreting these laws. And also these laws are just going to be thrown out. Like Ron DeSantis's uh, measure is a, is a clear violation of the First Amendment. He's like saying they're supporting terrorists. Uh, you to the you, the type of terrorism support is like actual material support. Like you're providing them money or weapons of some sort. And even that's not really the case here. They're not providing material aid to the, to the terrorists. And he's just censoring them for being under the perception that they're supporting the terrorists, which they really could just say, look, the Gaza Strip's government is Hamas and we just support the government or the, you know, Palestine itself. We're not... Uh, quite in support of Hamas. That's what easily these protesters could do. And I even think under the circumstance of being like a group saying like, uh, you know, saying something nice about an actual terrorist group that's not a government entity, you know, they would still, that would still largely be protected by the First Amendment. So this bill's, uh, this, this measure is going to be easily thrown out in court. And it's, once again, just another stupid PR stunt by Ron DeSantis to show that he's using state power just as stupid as him sending a handful of migrants to Martha's Vineyard and them all getting a pathway to citizenship. And then people like, this is how we deal with the left. This is opening a new chapter. And it's like, you know, that happened over a year ago. And we've had even more immigrants come to this country. So what, what, was, the, what was the benefit to this? What was the benefit to that? But I, you know, everyone told us, is like, oh, this is stopping libs in their tracks. Like, they're now going to turn against uh, open borders. No, they stayed with open borders. <laughs> We've had more immigrants since then. It was just a PR stunt done to get him more media attention. Same with this. Everything he does is just a PR stunt to gain media attention and not actual action for the most part. 
And so we're stuck with this stuff. And outside the PR sound, it's like, this is the completely wrong move to do. And that's why I really think it's, there's the pitfalls of engaging in this focus, intense focus on the, on the pro-Palestinian protesters. Because a lot of it is bringing these guys trying to indicate that they're on the team for the center right, that they are, you know, they're not criticizing the war. They're, they're, you know, within the confines, the safe confines of what conservative Inc. says that they should be and what they and that's what they want to say. And so that's their way of staying on the team. But staying on the team with Israel side, which is, you know, even if you're saying that, you know, opposed to American intervention, in the war and stuff like that. By getting really involved into the Palestinian protesters and seeing that these is a huge threat to the West and that there must be something done about them, it first off, the anti-war position by staying on the team is not going to be tenable because the team, the conservative Inc., is going to say that you know if something happens with Israel, America must intervene for our greatest ally. So it opens up the possibility that you're going to be open to a war. It opens up the possibility that you're going to be open up to refugees coming here because maybe Israel says that's the solution to this. And three, the, those two are possibilities. The one thing that is definitely true and that's already happening is that you're supportive of censorship measures. And I've always said, you know, I've said this before, the two things that we, because, you know, taking aside in this, like, we're not like a country. <laughs> we're not like we're declaring a neutrality. You know, we're not a country. We don't really, there's not even a point to like necessarily taking sides. I think that there's just a rather a focus on what issues that we should care about in this. And I've already outlined two. It's like in prior podcasts, it's like one, we are opposed to escalation of the war and America getting involved in the war. Absolutely. We are opposed to taking any refugees from these war-affected areas. Absolutely. Those are the two things that we've always said. But we have to add a third because apparently people are failing this. And that is we are opposed to any attempts to thwart free speech and to impose censorship. We are absolutely opposed to that. And, that's what, and the third option is what they're already doing. And it's already requiring for you to be a part, to be a respectable conservative, to stay within Conic and, and get the respect of them and, and earn their support, is that you have to support these idiotic measures to suppress free speech in America. And it can even get worse. Last week, and I highlighted this in my article, I had to add this uh, tweet to my article because I had written the whole article and then Andy McCarthy tweeted this out. And I was like, oh my God, this is the most insane thing I've ever read. Andy McCarthy, who's one of the preeminent legal, conservative legal analysts, like, you know, when conservatives want their answer on any legal problem happening, they turn to Andrew McCarthy. He's a Nash Review columnist, always on Fox News, very important conservative. And he had this horrific tweet calling on the deep state to go after and persecute people for the crime of anti-Semitism, on-campus anti-Semitism. And you're like, this is free speech. This is the First Amendment. Like, and how is this going to benefit us? If we're like telling the deep state, go after all anti-Semites and all those people guilty of hate speech, it's like, who the fuck do you think they're going to be arresting? It's not going to be the, the Palestinians. It's going to be it's going to be right wingers. That's who they want to be arresting. I mean, that's what the whole deep state's mission's been since Trump left office. It's always been saying 
white nationalists and right-wing extremists are our number one threat. And now you have conservatives like, hey, we want you to go after people for hate speech on for criticizing Israel and for criticizing Jewish people. Okay, what do you think the fucking deep state's going to go after? They're not going to go after these Palestinians and, and, and immigrants. They're going to go after right-wingers. That's who they want to go after. And they're going to be advised by this, by the ADL and SPLC, who to go after. And who are the ADL and SPLC focusing? Oh, well, more of the ADL. SPLC is another matter because most of the writers are actually pro-Palestinian. That's, that's like a gap between the left is that like the SPLC represents more the far left while the ADL represents the center left. But the ADL, you know, when it was talking about protests going on in this country, they didn't focus on the on the tens of thousands of Browns and Muslims protesting. They focused on like the tiny number of white supremacists that rallied. It's like white supremacists rally throughout the country. And it's like, oh, they must have had some major demonstrations. And then I go to like look at this article and it's like two guys with a fucking White Lives Matter placard out in like Florida. And it's like, this is not a fucking rally. <laughs> this is like, but that's what they want to have this focus on. They want to believe that the only opposition towards Israel are these dangerous right-wing extremists and white supremacists and neo-Nazis. That's who they want to tie the Palestine side with. And it makes the center left very uncomfortable that it's people like Black Lives Matter and, you know, queers for Palestine and stuff that are doing this because that's not who they want. You know, they're like, well, we sympathize with you. You were on your side. Why are you opposing Israel? And they can't really cope with that. So it's much easier for them to cope with this by just pretending that it's all neo-Nazis marching in the street. I The neo-Nazis must have changed their color, <laughs> their skin color, and adopted like the Kefa and other things uh, to uh, rally for Palestine. But that's just what it is. And that's another point, point is that they're not wanting to connect this to immigration. They want to connect this to like education policies. And this was even seen when there was some high school, I think it was in the San Francisco area, and all these kids marched through like saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free and like uh, marching for Palestine. And literally all these kids were non-white. Not a single white person among them. That's like pretty much every protest. It's like there's not, you're very rare to find any white skin. And even if you see like a white looking person, they generally have a kippo on and they're like Jews for Palestine. <laughs> you know? It's like the light, only light skinned people are probably Jews themselves, like strange Jews who are rallying for Palestine. But they still want to believe it, pretend it's all white supremacists. And so they were marching through this this hallway and there's been other high school walkouts too that's been entirely non-white and instead of saying like huh maybe this has something to do with immigration they're like this is showing the hateful indoctrination we're having to kids they're not learning enough about the holocaust and and how israel's awesome and so they're not even situating like oh maybe we should restrict immigration or anything no they're switching to we need even more uh holocaust education in schools we need even more israeli support and that's like the immediate thing that these uh, Zionists and neocons are going for immediately. And so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole point of this is to say, no, I, I don't think it's, the connection really is going with it is just to for people to stay on the proper confines of Con Inc. And really what it's opening up for is right now is that everyone's going to support censorship that can be easily used against the right and three things that we need to worry about 
anti-censorship, anti-immigration, anti-war. And this is already clearly violating the third one or the one about censorship. And it could lead to these guys like, oh, you know, Chris Rufo, if you want to keep speaking at our conferences and stuff, you better not say anything about the war because um, this is about Israel. This is a fight for our civilization. And, you know, uh, the refugee, the refugees one will be a bit more difficult because it's going to be very hard to sell Americans on this on the refugees because they've been spending this whole time like saying like all these Gazans support Hamas so there's no innocent parties and then they're gonna be like uh those people we all said were Hamas supporters you now need to let them in they're they're actually not Hamas supporters anymore it's like um <laughs> I don't think that's it, it's you can even see this when Nikki Haley seemed to imply at one point that she was open to bringing refugees here uh Palestinian refugees and then she had to backtrack and say absolutely no Palestinian refugees it's going to be a hard sell. The only people who are explicitly saying that are on the far left, like Jamal Bowen. I mean, that could rise more, but it's going to be a very tough sell with on the immigration front. But I think the censorship has already been sold too well, and the war can be sold uh, effectively to conservatives, unfortunately. And so those are the three things we need to worry about and focus on. And if anything that we're doing with the Israeli side are saying, you know, worrying about Palestinian protesters, if that's leading us to abandon our core principles and to embrace policies that will ultimately hurt us and limit our ability to speak freely, then we should oppose that. And a lot of these people came out, you know, in my mentions talking about how like, oh, free speech support, that is weak. We're overcoming that. We're crushing speech we hate. And it's that's like just straight up idiotic. One, we don't have the power to crush any speech we don't like. We're not in that position. Look at what DeSantis done. DeSantis, the only type of speech he goes after is fucking hate speech. It, it's the, you know, let's look at the hate speech law he passed earlier in a April that's going to ban hate leafleting. And also to note about that law from the spring is that specifically allowed left-wing administrators at universities to charge people who come onto their campus and are non-students and spread hateful ideas. So that could be anyone that could. And, you know, uh, a imaginative liberal could just say like any person coming on to, on campus, like it could be even a preacher who's like saying that, you know, gay homosexuality is a sin. The university could say he's spreading hate. He's harassing students. This is a criminal offense. Let's arrest him for a felony. That's the type of people they could be. It could be any number of people who they could use that. That was a broad law to allow the criminalization of hate speech. And that's all that that's the only type of speech that conservatives go after. It's not like they're going after people who demand that Columbus Day be called Indigenous Peoples Day or demand that, you know, saying like white uh, whites are inherently racist. You know, they're never going to go after those people. They're just going to go after uh, quote unquote anti-Semites or some other group that's easily to punish. And then left liberals, uh, you know, DAs and administrators can then apply that to people criticizing immigration are criticizing Black Lives Matter, or any number of things. And so, you know, when these people mock the idea of supporting free speech, it's like, the only way that we have any ability to dis, uh, disseminate our views is due to free speech. Is that if we have free speech protected, our views are able to triumph and able to gain a new audience. Just like what's happened to Elon Musk X. And I argue this in my article is that we're now able to set the discourse and on X and we're now able to get out a ton of ideas and new information.
that have been restricted in years past. And that's because free speech is allowed to thrive. When free speech is protected and allowed to thrive, we triumph and we get our views out there. And we are not in a position to restrict our enemy's views at this point. And in order to... And millions of Americans are won over by our to appeals to civil liberties. A lot of Americans, I mean, it could be cringe or whatnot, but it benefits us. They'll say, well, I disagree with what you're saying, but I fully support your right to say it. And also the courts of law defend our right to say these things that may be hurtful or offensive to various groups. And we need to preserve that and protect that as a political strategy because we're not in power at all to start restricting the left speech. And it's very stupid that we champion a law that would easily be expanded to us just and we're not even really owning our enemies we're just owning one insignificant student group that can then be expanded to include right-wing student groups so i just think it's uh i mean people on on twitter all the time want to imagine that they have all this power and these power fantasies it's a it's a huge problem with the right is that many of these people just want to get on there and jerk themselves off to the idea that they have all this power and can crush their enemies left and right. And all it does is take a tweet of like saying, I'm going to censor you. And it doesn't really happen. I remember I was speaking at the VDAR conference and there was some questioner who asked uh, some of the speakers like, why don't we just restrict the speech of our enemies? And the whole crowd went crazy. And it's like, you guys are in no position to restrict the speech of your enemies. And by coming out and saying we actually don't believe in free speech, it undermines our support for our, our ideas to free speech. I mean, this can be brought up in court and stuff like against us and other things in a case. It's like, well, you're saying you have you believe in free speech, but you then gave a speech saying that you actually don't believe in free speech and that you want to restrict that of others. And even outside the court of law, it hurts us in the court of public opinion because it's like obvious hypocrisy. And you do need to offer... And, you know, we call out hypocrisy so much of our enemies. You know, you shouldn't be a hypocrite yourselves, especially when free speech, unlimited free speech is so beneficial to us. There's really no downside to it. And anytime you see um, people restricting stuff, it's always after quote unquote hate speech. That doesn't mean we can, um, you know, some of the claims that the left makes that we're, you know, restricting free speech from like these uh, fake book bans or banning certain uh, woke curriculum is wrong or that we have to oppose that because that's not dealing with free speech. That's like what government is paying money to teach your kids. And you have a say over what's being taught them. If you choose not to teach certain things, that's a part of the government. It's not like they are required to learn about, uh, you know, a radical black liberationist message. So that has nothing to do with free speech. It's more about the individual outside of the state having the right to speak their views and we should always preserve that and protect that because we are going to be the primary targets for any speech depression in this country. So I don't really like the Palestinian protesters whatsoever. I mean, anytime I see them, it's like, regardless of the issue and anytime I see them, I'm like, I, why are these people in my country? That's like always my view. Whenever I see this, it's like, why are these people here? And it's like, I would never want to rally with them or side with them. But at the same time, I support their right to speak <laughs> freely. And that's what I, what I think we should always stand. So I, I don't like this connection with it because instead of connecting 
you know, and trying to restrict, you know, radical black liberationist ideology to uh, students or to curbing ethnic studies departments. All it does is that it encourages the right to support censorship and disregard its its uh, a principal stand on free speech, which would ultimately hurt the right. And so I don't think it's this. Uh, I don't think it's working quite as a brilliant political strategy. And I think it's be just because the the left, the Palestine, as I said, the Palestinian protesters want to make that connection. They think it's beneficial to their side to make this connection. But the Israeli, the Zionists don't want to make that connection. It, they all want this to be about them. And even there, they will try to be that we're actually the woke side. It's like, oh, did you know that Israel is one of the most uh, gay-friendly countries in the world? Uh, did you know we're actually the indigenous people fighting against colonization by the Arabs? You know, that's all the arguments that they go to. They immediately go to these left-wing arguments to defend Israel and to try to win over other, uh, other leftists. You know, they don't want to they don't want to be like, oh, we're actually are uh, a colonialist power fighting against the brown hordes. You know, they don't want to make that argument. They're like, oh, we're actually non-white, too. We're a part of the third world, too. And that's all the arguments that they want to assign. And also the Zionists, they want to imagine that their opponents are neo-Nazis. They don't want to imagine them as the leftists. They're always like, wow, Adolf Hitler would be proud. There was this one funny uh, tweet where this guy, this actually is a rabbi, who is at a California university. I forget which one. It might have been Berkeley. But he was like hearing this chanting. It's like, uh, Israel, Israel, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. And he thought he was saying that they were like, we want Jewish genocide. And it's like, um, clearly they were not saying that, but that's what he heard. And then he's like, this is like 1947 Germany, which then brought you wonder. It's like, um, occupied Germany post war war two was, was, uh, a really <laughs> extremely anti-Semitic place. Once again, bad history is like 1947 Germany. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, you know, the Nazis were no longer in power then. That's some bad history, uh, Mr. Rabbi, but. Uh, that's like the type of uh, rhetoric that they're getting into. They don't want to portray these guys as the left. They want to portray these guys as uh, the same as white supremacists and, not, and neo-Nazis. And so it's not really helping our side. And even the stuff, it's like, well, there's more support for deporting these people. First off, they're only going to deport like a handful of people. They're not going to deport like the tens of thousands of people who are marching in, in London. They're not going to deport them. They're going to deport like five people. And it's like, okay. It's not like I cry over those five people. It's like, and people are worried. Like, they may deport us. It's like, fortunately, we're citizens. And this is one benefit of being natives to the country. Is that you don't have to worry about your country deporting. You do have to worry about the country arresting you. But that's one thing I don't care. It's like, they deport people. It's like, I, good, but they're not going to deport the, them in mass. So it doesn't make that huge of a difference. And so I don't really care about it. And it's also I don't really cry too much that some of these people who are generally awful leftists who are very anti-white lose their prominent jobs at law firms or whatever over this support. But, you know, at the same time, I don't want them the government censoring them or their university censoring them or those types of things violating the First Amendment coming out of there. Uh, uh, immigrants shouldn't uh, have the same protections as us uh, when it comes to those civil liberties. And if they do get deported over their views, that's fine. But they're they're not going to deport anyone, uh, in my opinion. If they do, it's only going to be a handful. There's one thing to say about the left is in comparison with the right. I am, you know, even though I don't like these people, 
I do have to respect the fact that they're the risk that they're taking for this because pro Palestine issue is not a, a safe thing to protest for. It's very controversial. These people are aware that they're going to be you know, they could lose their jobs, they could be arrested by the police because they're all doing these type of protests where there's mass there's a lot of mass arrests and that people are going to harass them and dox them outside their home and all these risks, and yet they still go and do it. Some of it isn't really leftist. A lot of them is just they're Muslim immigrants, but you do have to respect that, even if you don't want them in the country. You do have to respect that the fact that they're willing out and going to go the extra mile. That they're that morally committed to their beliefs. I mean, compare this to the right the right, uh, you know, a lot of right-wingers get doxxed and they're like, oh, actually, I didn't really believe this. Uh, they totally disappeared. They, even when it comes to public protests, like we can't get public protests out because if more than five people gather in one area, the three of them have to be feds. And so, you know, it doesn't really show the type of commitment on the rights part, the la- the type of seriousness and the moral belief in their in, in their views that a lot of the left has. Because a lot of people argue like the left doesn't generally believe this stuff. They only take safe positions and and they don't act, they could easily be changed overnight. And actually, no, these people are fully 100% morally committed to these ideas. And compared to the average right winger, I think the average insane leftist is more committed to their ideas. Now, it may just be because this type of society we live in Far left ideas are still seen as moral, even and good. Even if the society is like, well, that goes too far, they're still uh, they come from a morally good place. While far right ideas are seen as the ultimate evil, as bad, as hateful, and people maybe don't have quite that moral commitment to them if they feel that the rest of society feels that they're you know uh, moral reprobates that they're actually evil while with the left they're just misguided but fundamentally good that they're actually fighting for a good cause and a lot of the far left can just say oh these people are like those who are telling martin luther king to not go too far or are criticizing them for going too far and that history is going to remember us as being on the good and virtuous and just side and so i think this does give them a lot of support for their views and no matter what happens well there is like a lot of commitment to this i mean even if you look at what the Antifa idiots are doing in Atlanta and opposing cop city and having this like full on riots and taking on cops. And I don't think this is very smart, but it it does show like a strong commitment to their views in a lot of ways um, that you don't see quite on the same way of the right. Now, yeah, you can argue that there are more consequences for being involved in the right. And I'm also, of course, not advocating for people to do stupid stuff, even like the public demonstrations. I think like at this point, public demonstrations for the right aren't really that effective because one, we can't get those type of numbers out in the streets. We just can't. The stop the steal stuff, those rallies was one of the few times that we were able to get tens of thousands of people out in the street. And then it led to uh, (laughs) a... uh, not a very good moment on January 6th. Something that actually hurt the right. So sometimes, and even if you want to go further back where Charlottesville didn't get that many people and that utterly destroyed the alt-right. So I, I don't want to make clear with like public demonstrations are the way to go. Or that I'm not, and to clarify, sometimes public demonstrations are fine, peaceful protests. You know, it's as long as it's 
like fine it's it's there it's showing support but i do just say that you know with the right always like saying we're ready to take the streets we're ready for civil war and then when we see the left when they finally have an issue where there's going to be major consequences by them rallying and demonstrating and for it they're all out there and they're not intimidated by what could happen to them by being there and so there's something to, there's something to say for that that a lot of the leftists are willing to take these risks and go out there and be committed to their views even though they know that this could cost them their job that they could have like a truck outside their home <laughs> with their face on it that some of these people are doing uh, and just like all these other risks and they yet they still take it and that's like they are generally committed to thinking that Palestine is on the right side of history and that they must stand for Gaza and um, that Israel is the evil power in this. And that's the same when why they're when they're rallying for Black Lives Matter or whatever. They generally believe this stuff. And that is like and they are and they believe it's morally good and just. And there is a power to that. And that's how they're able to accomplish a lot of what they want to do. And I think these protests do have some effect by how large scale they are and how many campuses, even though it's like making a lot of Jews in America go nuts. And, and it's, you know, it's particularly, you know, Israel supporters uh, lose their minds over this stuff and wanting the FBI to arrest anyone who criticizes Israel. At the same time, it does make center left politicians and Democratic leaders leery of going full on into war support because they're worried about having these mass protests and losing the far left base and they know that their far left base is not going to be supportive of a war and so that's something that they have to keep in mind and i have to emphasize that all the war opposition is unfortunately going to come entirely from the left i mean we're going to be online tweeting about stuff and like uh, opposing it and i and i fully encourage that i mean Flooding the phone lines of these congressmen to, you know, if we're ever in a chance where we may send American ground troops into the Middle East, you know, that could have an effect too. But the primary opposition towards it within Congress and on the streets is going to be entirely from the far left. And that's that's just what it is. Um, unfortunately, with the, with the right, I don't... I, the right, I don't know the full opinion what it would be if we actually got into a war. One thing I'm encouraged by is that it would be so unpopular that Biden, or at least Biden's handlers, know to not go in and send troops. And I don't even, it's also, like, we sent troops there. They would just be sent there to get blown up by IEDs and engage in a guerrilla war, which already didn't go well for us in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I don't know what how this is going to improve in Lebanon, which is where we likely send troops. I, I don't know what how that would benefit us. And most likely we get a bunch of troops killed. And instead of retaliating and escalating towards bombing Iran, we would then just pull the troops out. I mean, we, this already happened in the early 80s, you know, over 40 years ago, where we sent Marines there to be peacekeepers. They got blown up by Hezbollah and we pulled the troops out. You know, they killed, killed nearly 300 Marines. So if that happens again, you're not going to see public opinion like, let's bomb Tehran. It's going to be like, let's get the hell out of there. And even if that happened with a troop, like a ship attack, even if there's a ship attack, it's going to be very unpopular to have an Iraq-style war. I think at most what they would do is just have, you know, airstrikes on Hezbollah targets or whoever they blame for this. Um, attack whether it's Hamas or somebody they're just going to have uh, air assaults there and I don't I think they're 
definitely afraid of sending ground troops there because they would just know that they would be easy targets for you know the guerrilla strikes and that type of warfare we saw in iraq in the late 2000s and we saw from afghanistan ever since we were occupying there and that would not be good for america when it comes to the war what I think the main thing we want to have with the war is we want it over to be over quickly. It's not even quite like who wins or loses here because it's like it's really in the eye of the beholder of who wins or loses. You know, Israel's like point is to just account for a lot of bodies to rack up a high body count and to destroy Hamas's leadership infrastructure and possibly depopulate a large portion of Gaza. I don't think that's going to happen without international condemnation and international isolation of Israel. And I think even for it's going to be very hard for them to knock out Hamas in the complete manner that they want. And I think even Hamas knows this. I I don't think Israel wants a long protracted conflict even though they're you know saying that they're going to have a protracted conflict. And a protracted conflict is not good for us because that that absolutely there's going to be tons of refugees from there. The one thing you would hope for is that Israel, you know, realizes that this is not going to go well for them. And Hamas just like, okay, you can have the hostages back. And then Israel, after killing enough people, they're like, okay, we, we're done. They take the hostages. Israel, you know, it's a face-saving measure, but they look weak in this regard that they can't actually deal with Hamas. Hamas, you know, doesn't, you know, protects, protects the Gazans from being... Uh, cleansed out of the territory everyone goes home we don't have to worry about refugees and we don't have to worry about a greater regional war i don't know if that's going to happen that would probably be the best case scenario just because we wouldn't have to worry about refugees in this scenario um, i think we're going to have to worry about refugees regardless even if some people are like well if, you know hamas wins or whoever wins you know there wouldn't be as many refugees it's like Hamas winning would be, it's a long protracted conflict where they clearly, you know, force a ton of people out, but Israel eventually retreats without gaining shit and without destroying Hamas. And that's, and further weakening themselves in the eye of the world and alienating themselves from the rest of the world through what the actions they would take in Gaza. Um, but that would still send a ton of refugees here. So I, I would say best case scenario is that you know, short war, very short war, and it's over by the end of the year. They accept the Hamas gives them the refugees or the hostages back, and that's it. And so, but it's um, I, I don't know if that's the most likely scenario. They're there. I was watching you know the news last night, and they're uh, Israel is very proud of the fact that they're attacking Hezbollah targets in Lebanon. So there's a great chance that they may be expanded to Lebanon increases the chance of American involvement and this is uh, it could spiral out of control and be a very nasty situation but we'll continue talking about this in the future already spent almost 50 minutes on this and we still have a lot of other topics and I'm sure I'm going to still have more information to talk about next week but just for some final thoughts I think it, it is very obvious just to include in summary of what my argument is it is obvious that the pro-Palestinians want to tie themselves into the broader left and see this domestically as a part of the greater, grander left-wing struggle for black lives and LGBT rights, etc., etc. 
And so it's obvious to see them as a part of the left and connected to all these other things that we definitely oppose. And this is like very anti-Western mindset. But at the same time, the people who are trying to win over these arguments uh, don't care about this. They want it to be focused entirely on Israel. And they just pat us on the head. That's say that's nice. But get out of the way of their main focus. And if you try to impose your main focus, we're going to lecture you like Ben Shapiro did to Tucker Carlson. So they're not going to be like that. And it's and I think it opens up by focusing on how awful these protesters are and, and having that as our main focus. It opens up the possibility that we're going to then support censorship measures that would be easily applied to the right. And that would hurt ourselves and we would gain nothing from it. And I've made this point is like some people, you know, I did get a few people ask, like, maybe we should be rhetorically pro-Israel. And even rhetorically pro-Israel doesn't work because the Zionists are going to demand even more than that. They want to demand that we will support a engagement in a war no matter what. They will demand that we support censorship no matter what. And they could even demand that we support taking in all these refugees no matter what. And all three of those things we have to vehemently oppose. But a lot. final thought on it is that the... Uh, the stuff that these pro-Israel people are saying is just like so idiotic that I don't really want to be uh, on the same side of them or just like care about this issue in the same way. You know, Dave Rubin has uh, abandoned free speech and his uh, concern with cancel culture to embrace cancel culture and censorship. And they're even just like, using these asinine arguments to try to win uh, uh, people like us over. They're like, you know, there was these protesters they were not even pro-palestinian protesters they were over some left-wing pro professor who got fired or suspended for harassing another professor who i think she had a relationship with and she was like a crazy girlfriend and like keying his car and stuff <laughs> has nothing to do with politics but i think she is left-wing i think she is hispanic because all the people there like on the field were hispanic so they're just like standing up for their co-ethnic and they're there and like dave rubin is like you have to realize like and they delay this uh usc Berkeley game by like five minutes. And Dave Rubin's like, you have to realize these Palestinian protesters threaten everything the West cherishes, everything the West values they're going to destroy. And it's like, it's a short delay of a fucking football game. This is like stupid. But that's like the type of asinine, idiotic arguments we're getting to try to win us over to care about this stuff. It's like, they don't threaten western civilization you know they're not like these pro individual protesters are just it's over a foreign policy issue and we should have free speech over this matter and all these people didn't give a shit when these people were you know and the wealthy donors who are wanting to defund their universities and other things they didn't give a shit when the institutions themselves are becoming anti-white and this is this is something to keep in mind these are just student groups what is the university supposed to do like ban free speech and that's what the donors are saying. But when the universities themselves are promoting anti-whiteness, they don't give a shit. They keep signing their checkbook. So it's like, and they're not going to be suddenly won over to thinking that they should cut out the universities over their wokeness. No, they're going to keep signing the checkbooks, signing the checks as long as Israel's not mentioned. So this is not going to be expanded to include our issues that are related to anti-white racism and open borders. It's going to be solely focused on Israel. And so we don't really have a dog in that fight. And so it's not worth us to care so much about it that we began championing censorship as some great victory. So now on to other topics. 
We're now going to talk about the House speakers that they finally got. A, Republicans finally picked a House speaker after uh, numerous false starts and arguments over who it should be. They settled on Mike Johnson, who is a Louisiana congressman. He was vice chair of the House Republican Conference, which I think would put him at fourth in line for leadership. It would be House Majority Leader, House Majority Whip, or fifth in line, fifth in line for leadership. Uh, so he finally got it. And people are saying that this is a huge victory and maybe it wasn't quite a victory when people unearthed his comments uh, following George Floyd's death, where he essentially endorsed systemic racism and white privilege and says we need systemic change to these things. Um, likely he would not say that today, but it's still uh, concerning. He has an adopted black son and he said that influences his racial views. Uh, another mark of concern uh, that you would have around him. But this is um, this is our new House Speaker. And a lot of people are just like championing this as like a huge victory. One of the funniest things, I didn't want to tweet this because I don't like publicly criticizing Matt Gates when it comes to Twitter where people are going to notice this. Uh, fewer people see, <laughs> listen to my podcast rather than uh, see my tweets. So this is buried 53 minutes into a podcast. So I'm allowed to have a little bit of criticism of Gates. Gates, all these people are like celebrating this as like the total victory for Gates. And the day before Mike Johnson became House Speaker, Gates was whipping votes for Tom Emmer. Tom Emmer was the worst choice of all possible House Speaker candidates. But he was just, a, he was, he's worse than McCarthy. Absolutely worse than McCarthy. And Trump hates him. Trump, that, you know, he, Trump hated him the most of any of the possibilities. And Gates was whipping up support for him. And then the next day, a different guy gets in. He's like, ah, victory. I won. And it's like, you really just wanted any person not named Kevin McCarthy. And then, like, whoever it's picked, it's like, it's a win. I still like Gates. I still support him in his political career. But, you know, dishonesty and, and uh, or some uh, distortion of the facts, I, I just have to, uh, didn't rub me the right way. So I wanted to... Uh, Note that that it was not quite the victory because he was supporting Tom Ember just the day before. Now he gets, now he gets um, Johnson, and he acts like this is what he predicted the whole time. And it's not who they wanted; they wanted Jim Jordan, and Jim Jordan failed, so they got Johnson. Now, is this a bigger victory? On paper, this guy is better than McCarthy. Whether he can get things done more than McCarthy, um, I don't know. I think a lot of problems like we're that we may have been in a better situation with McCarthy because I think Johnson he doesn't have as much leadership experience as McCarthy. I don't want to really sound like I'm better than McCarthy like McCarthy's great, but McCarthy is a skilled political animal. He is an asshole. He is able to try to move people, things around. The problem is is that there was a sizable number of people who really hated him. Johnson got this because everyone likes him or no one really has a problem with him. And that that is a little bit concerning when you're becoming house speakers that you're going to just try to please everyone. And, but as house speaker, you're going to have to piss off people and who he chooses to piss off is going to be an important to note. And Johnson already was like opposed to Ukraine funding, but now he's changing his tone and saying, Oh, we should fund Ukraine, but maybe we'll put some um, restrictions on it or some uh, uh, supervision over it, which I guess it's better than before, but, you know, what was the whole point of getting rid of McCarthy? And all these people were saying, we're getting rid of McCarthy because they're continuing to fund Ukraine. And then you have your new House speakers like, oh, yeah, we're going to fund Ukraine, too. And it's like, well, what's the difference? 
in reality, we're not going to see any real difference between McCarthy and this new guy. But what's going to happen is there's going to be a budget battle. He's going to offer a continuing resolution, which the conservatives said they're opposed to continuing resolution. They want this divvied up into a more Tea Party style appropriations uh, measures, which you know no one gives a shit about. This is like total Tea Party stuff. It's like with the world burning and with an open border, this is what you fucking care about is government spending. No one gives a shit about this. And that's what all the arguments over McCarthy were. It's not over like Trumpists or America First versus the establishment. It was Tea Party versus establishment. That was all their concerns. But with Mike Johnson, they're actually, the fact is, is a lot of the McCarthy stuff is that they simply didn't like McCarthy. They like Johnson. So Johnson is probably going to offer the same exact continuing resolution with a few changes that McCarthy offered uh, a few weeks ago, back in late September. They're going to accept it. They're going to say this is a huge, huge victory for us, even though it's hardly any different than what McCarthy gave them. They're going to pass it. And it'll set up another budget battle sometime in the next year. And that's probably what will happen. And in the next budget battle, probably the same shit will happen again. And our probably, well, it may be different in that time is that conservatives will make their idiotic Tea Party demands that have no concern for anyone, are concerned to what voters care about. And the caucus is broken up again. And they either pass something that's just like a clean stopgap bill that. Democrats vote for and then they say Johnson's a traitor or they pass another similar like watered down continuing resolution that all the House Freedom Caucus people are upset with. So it's it's likely not going to lead to any major differences. And this guy is like fully on board with like the swamps concerns in terms of foreign policy you know he's like his first move was to pass a resolution in support of israel and then they passed a resolution condemning campus anti-semitism all very important things and i don't know there's just like something this guy is better on paper he did help he's a strong trump supporter so i do like that Um, and that makes him better than scalise and emmer by being a Trump strong Trump supporter. I mean, McCarthy was fairly pro-Trump. I mean, he was pro-Trump when it mattered. I mean, he would complain about him, but he was clearly, you know, meeting with him and not wanting to upset Trump. And Jim Jordan was clearly very pro-Trump. So that's like good, but I don't th- really, I don't predict any meaningful differences. They may get a few more things done on the border, but all these things that everyone has been predicting on Twitter, defunding Ukraine, that could ha- that's not going to happen this year. Maybe next year, depending on how long uh, the Ukraine, uh, Israel conflict is raising and whether Israel demands more money, and that means we're going to have to cut off Ukraine. But uh, you know, defunding Jack Smith—that's not going to happen. Uh, make major making major spending cuts—that's not going to happen. It's just going to be the same as usual. But people feel that they've done something uh, by getting rid of Kevin McCarthy just because of personal. Mainly just because of personal differences, which I don't think McCarthy was that great, but a lot of people were just felt that we needed to do something and this felt like something and anytime we do something, it's like inherently good. 
Which I, I would not compare this to other things where people have just said, like, we need to do something and that's, like, good, like, say, like, Charlottesville or some uh, it, other stupid protest or something that people want to do. Or it's like, at least it's doing something. I would not compare that as bad, but I think there, there's on our side is, like, we need to do something and anything we do is, like, automatically good when in a lot of times it can lead to a worse situation or to no improvement of the situation which is what happened and i think it's like conservatives need to be a little bit clear about what they want to demands and realistic about what they want to demands if they want to make serious improvements on the border maybe mike johnson can be the person to deliver on that and but that needs to be the overriding focus of what they want in any budget but they have all these various other demands to happen that they can't remain focused on like one specific demand that they can wring out of democrats and so I'm a little bit skeptical about what can happen with with Mike Johnson. Yeah, and I, I, I don't want to join the cheerleading uh, squad about, like, this is the biggest victory for us at all. We've already seen him moving more to a more, to a more moderate establishment direction after he won. And he has to do that to keep the caucus together. And we'll, we'll see. But it's also the bigger thing, I think, culturally is what happened with his Black Lives Matter statement. Or rather, this is what I want to focus on. It does remind us how horrible Republicans were after George Floyd. Every single Republican came out with similar statements, maybe not as sounding like woke university professors, but it was all bad. Like Greg Abbott came out and said, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Josh Hawley gave this whole speech about how angry he was at police racism towards blacks. Everyone was making these terrible statements. Tom Cotton was one of the few who was like, you know, we're still standing with police and sitting in the military. Cotton's really not that good of a lawmaker, but at least he was saying that. Uh, Trump um, trivialized this statement, George Floyd death, by being Trump, where he, you know, he gave a speech. He's like, George Floyd would be looking down and so proud of what, our black unemployment figures that it's making it into a joke uh, of the of what happened with Floyd. But every Republican was just like terrible on this. And so were a lot of conservatives. And it's a lot of revisionism on the part of conservatives of how they reacted to this later down the road. I'm glad that there's revision and that no one wants to admit that they were pro Floyd or pro uh, BLM at the time. There was even some surprising supporters of BLM at the time. I remember when Floyd died is that there was all these Wignats. Wignats in 2020 were a different breed, uh, but they were all like talking about how they sympathize with Floyd and like the police officer's uh, knee could be on our necks. And it's like, uh, no. And then they were all like standing up with Floyd. And there was even few who were defending the riots uh, at first. Uh, this opinion didn't stay around very long, but Wignats in 2020 were like, like reached the pinnacle of contrarianism uh, on a lot of things. They were also like wanting like uh, like a decade long lockdown, and they wanted like SWAT teams coming in to like vax people and stuff. There was like some weird things among going on among certain demographics of Wignats, but uh, yeah. But even among conservatives, who were primarily talking about who actually matter more, is that they were you know. Pro Floyd and talking about how horrible this is, and then it's only over time that it is, which is good that this is now when people bring up George Floyd among conservatives, it's a negative impression. And what happened with Derek Chauvin? There's a more support for Chauvin and others 
But now it's more it's safer to do. And that's a change that we now see. But at the time, more conservatives were sounding like Mike Johnson than they would like to admit today. Uh, there's only a few who are uh, not sounding like Mike Johnson. I can safely say I'm one of them. Uh, and so were uh, many others. But And I immediately you know, didn't sympathize with the officers in this case when it came out. And I was uh, vindicated by later evidence of this. Um, but yeah, that's like what it was. And even like people that you would think are hard right. And this is like going back to a different case that happened just earlier before it was Ahmad Arbery. It's like Matt Walsh and all these tough guy conservatives were standing with Ahmad Arbery saying like, oh, he's just doing guy stuff, like entering a home and checking out a new home. And it's like, he clearly had been like robbing a lot of these homes under construction and doing other things and being suspicious. And he was clearly not out on a jog with his like Timberlands and you know, he shot him, but all these conservatives like, this is horrible. This is atrocious. These guys deserve murder charges. And that was the same with Floyd. I mean, they've changed in a better direction, but it's worth keeping in mind. And that's something else for the next topic that we want to talk about, which is the Robert E. Lee statue getting melted down. Uh, this is a horror. I mean, it was like a very symbolic of the statue being melted down. And you're seeing all these posts about it. I mean, the, the face being melted and like it orange, you know, it really reminded, it was like very appropriate for Halloween. It reminded me of the Halloween openings, but now it's like Robert E. Lee. Uh, and now they just like leave the mask. They've cut off the face and it's leaving a mask. And it could create an interesting horror movie. And then there's like scars on it. It's like, there's like a, you know, ghost of Robert E. Lee puts on the mask to take vengeance on, on those who attacked him. That could be an interesting horror movie. But everyone's posting about this, and unfortunately, the one thing is like I'm so jaded to the Southern, to the Confederate stuff because you know I've been witnessing this for over eight years. I remember how it really upset me, and when they brought down the Confederate flag in South Carolina because they had all these people, mostly white, standing around singing na 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 na. Hey, 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 goodbye. And it's like the flag is being brought down and they're all celebrating it. And it really, really uh, upset me when it was like happening. And, you know, I was really furious about it. And then in two years later, after Charlottesville, you know, and actually th something to keep in mind is like our public demonstrations when people are like, let's do public demonstrations. What happened to Lee's statue? You know, the Charlottesville was like their big foray and like it was about the saving the statue and they did the complete opposite is that they encouraged more statues to be taken down but after Charlottesville there was all these statues being taken down and there was this one in North Carolina where all these protesters just like dragged down this confederate statue and then they began kicking it and stomping on it and that really was like upsetting to see like all these confederate statues and then we saw that in 2020 where they're dragging more statues down and it's not just confederate statues and you're seeing similar levels of disrespect. And I remember actually going to Richmond before they took down the Lee statue. And they'd already taken down all the statues along uh, Monument Avenue. You know, it was like Jackson. Uh, uh, I think Jefferson Davis was along there and some others. And Lee was the last one remaining. And I remember it was like surrounded by a fence and there was like all this graffiti over it. It was like already defaced and already degraded. And, you know, it really bothered me at the state of it. And now I just see this stuff and I'm just so jaded at, at, the, at the erasure of our history that it's like how uh, I'm not really... 
I'm not as upset as I should be because I've been witnessing this for several years. I mean, this really started after the Charleston shooting eight years ago in 2015. And we've seen this all before. And so I'm now used to it. But it's another case of conservatives. There's a couple different points I want to make here. It's like, one, conservatives are all now condemning this. And they're like, there's a lot of random people who are like, not had accounts very long as like, I've been warning about this for years and conservatives didn't listen that there are first they'll come for Confederate statues, then they'll go for everything else. That's like, congrats, like 2018 account for being ahead of the curve. And all these people were like saying this, but conservatives, when it mattered, were not there fighting for this. They were not there in 2015. They were not there in 2017. More of them were there in 2020, but they were not there in 2015 and 2017. And there were tons of arguments that conservatives were making. And I remember this in 2015. And once again, you cannot accuse me of, not that anyone here would, but maybe some people on Twitter would, of accuse me of coming lately to this. I was writing daily caller columns in 2015, condemning the attacks on Confederacy that were coming from the left. And I was saying that this is going to happen to other American statues. And I said that after Charlottesville, and I was saying this uh, all the time. So I've been consistent on this position. Not like it's like that surprising. I was like, you know, a ratings journal writer. So it's like I should have been for this. But I'm just saying, you know, I'm one of the people. But when it mattered, conservatives weren't there. They were not defending Confederate flags. They were not defending Confederate monuments in 2015 and 2017 when it was politically unpopular to do. Now I like that they've all taken this shit down and they're, you know, scraping off Lee's face from the monument and doing it as a humiliation act for uh, Southern Americans, uh, Southern white Americans. You know, now they're like, oh, this is terrible. Where was everyone standing up for this back when it mattered? It's like, well, you weren't there. And now you're coming into this when it's safer and more popular to do. And it's like nice that like Elon Musk and others are saying this. And so I, I do think that there is a realization now. But they're coming after all these statues. And it's already like the fight is over over it. So it's that's another reason why I can't get too upset about this is that it's there. And, but a lot of these cities just feel that this Confederate stuff is like out of place. I mean, a lot of these Southern cities are very black. Uh, Richmond is plurality black. It may have been reverting to plurality white. Uh, I need to check the latest figures, but I remember it's like plurality black for a long time. And the whites there are a horrible leftist. It's like Antifa central there. So it makes no sense that all these great Confederate statues are there. It's the same in Charlottesville. Uh, it's not plurality black, it's majority white, but it's like a libtard uh, college town. Of course, they're not going to like it. And so it is with a lot of these other side of the cities where it's either majority black or majority libtard. And so they don't really want to have these statues around. And that's unfortunate for the Southerners who care about this, but that's the nature of the thing. The other unfortunate aspect is that the Southerners, white Southerners, don't care as much about this stuff as they used to it's primarily found among the older generations among the boomers and those types who are the most upset about this younger southerners don't really probably wear the confederate flag or fly the confederate flag they're not as attached to it also the south itself has become changed over the years through internal migration of people moving from the north and the west to the south and external migration of people moving from outside the country to there and they don't have a connection to the confederacy of the south and a lot of the young southerners 
you know, they're into rap music. They're, you know, they still have their accents, but it's still different. Um, but they're not that different from the rest of the population. And they have bought into this idea that the Confederacy, is, you know, Confederate flag represents uh, some symbol of hate. Even if you go into polling, most of the polling shows that a lot of Southerners now agree with the general American view over the of the Confederate flag. It's no longer a symbol of heritage for them. Even though many Southerners still attach it to it, they're not as strong. And you can even see that with driving throughout the South. It's like driving through the South, you know, when I did that as a kid, or even 10 years ago when I was doing it, you know, when I was still in college, you'd see Confederate flags all the time driving throughout the South. Now, if you see one, it's a rare sight. It is a rare sight to see a Confederate flag. You're like, whoa, hey, it's like something out of history. It's like a historical moment. And you're like realizing that this is probably not going to be there. You know, I grew up in Nashville and we have this famous Nathan Bedford forest statue that had all these, had all the states that were supposedly part of the Confederacy, even the ones that didn't quite join, like it had Missouri and Maryland uh, and they didn't join the Confederacy, but it had its state flags there out there with a Confederate flag underneath. I figured it was underneath or over or over the state flags, but it had alongside a Confederate flag along it. And this is on the busiest interstate. This is along I-65 driving into Nashville or driving right outside of Nashville. So it's right there. So everyone sees it. And, you know, they were wanting to change this 20 years ago, but they're like, we can never change it. And now that's, of course, completely gone. And if that was there today, <laughs> no, uh, they, they would clearly not allow that for Nashville. So it just like shows that signs of the times of the South is changing. The South itself is changing, and these younger people don't feel as connected to the Confederacy and to, and to Confederate heritage as their parents and grandparents did. And so there is a change over time with that. And I do feel that the only people who are really bothered by this, outside of Southern Boomers and that type of stuff, are people online. And you can even see this with a few things like Sons of Confederate Veterans, like is basically retirement home now. Same with Daughters of Confederate Veterans. Like anytime you go to an event like that, everyone's over 60. Like if somebody is under 60, they're like, oh, we've got young people here. There are no young people involved in this stuff. And even with this, uh, the descendants of A.P. Hill, who they also removed his statue and they had to remove his remains from the Richmond uh, Monument, Monument Avenue. You know, they've that guy has tried to do stuff with that and get people involved. And anytime you see these events, it's all old people. And he one time tried to have a protest for it. It was probably not well organized, but he only got like eight old people to show up for it. And so it's just not as powerful of an issue as it was, you know, 20, 20 years, over 20 years ago in the when South Carolina still was flying the Confederate flag on top of its capital, it was a much more powerful issue. And even eight years ago, when all these conservatives were saying, like, we shouldn't get rid of heritage and stuff, there was still a little bit more attachment to the Confederate flag. Now, the fact that the battle is over, really the only people who are caring about it are online. It is unfortunate. Uh, but it's moving on. But even a lot of the people who are involved in the right now have no connection to the Confederacy. I mean, we have so many people who are at the fringes of whiteness or post-Civil War immigrants that they don't even have an ancestor who fought in the Civil War. And so they don't really have that attachment to it. You know, and I have a deep attachment to it because, you know, I had several ancestors who fought under 
utterly. You know, he is like a symbol of my people, of my heritage. And so it is very upsetting for me, but I can't be too upset because I've been used to it. You know, it's I'm jaded now. And I do realize that a lot of the battle is over and it's time to move on to other things. I still like Confederate heritage in the South, you know, because that's my heritage. That's my legacy. But I also understand that fewer people on our, even on the right are connected to it due to the fact that they don't even have a Civil War ancestor. And even for the South, like people are moving on to other things. You know, Americans are people where... I don't want to use the term privilege, but we are a big aspect about white Americans is that we are bereft of history, is that we we slaw off our history and our heritage to just be generic Americans, which we're just focused on, you know, sports and, you know, the latest Marvel movies and stuff like that. And that's what's real. Our attachments is that we're not like the Balkans where these people have like a deep historical memory and they're worried about things that happened in the 1300s. We're we're certainly not like what we're seeing in Israel, Palestine, where there's this long history where they care deeply about things that happened in the past in America. The part of assimilating into America is that you are without a past. On a modern America, I don't want to say that, is that you give up any sense of past or heritage and you're just there as a generic person wandering around aimlessly just like any other individual. And what's happening in the South is to bring the South into destroying that past and heritage that makes it unique and distinct from the rest of the country. And now they're just generic Americans or generic modern Americans just like anybody else. I don't say this is like was it for all of America's history, but I do think that it's a big part of the post-World War II, certainly post-Cold War America is to have this project. And it's the same with these immigrants. They come here and they want to throw off or they attempt to throw off their (laughs) old foreign allegiances and heritage. But as we're seeing with the Palestine-Israel protests, that's not always the case. But eventually they do assimilate and a part of that assimilation process is not having that fervent attachment to a history or past that, say, people in other parts of the world have. And we're now seeing that with the Confederate heritage. So uh, I'm going to definitely be accused of being of dropping a mega black pill about that. We don't have to be like that. I do. Uh, the one white pill is that I think it does create a sense of identity and consciousness to be attached to this old history of America that the state and the regime are throwing off. And the fact that they're wanting to destroy them creates a disconnect from the regime with its people. And it creates something that is when we're honoring these heroes, whether it's Andrew Jackson or Robert E. Lee, we are creating a different past and a different heritage from what's the official regime heritage. And that does offer opportunities for us to create a greater disconnect between the official narrative and what's the true narrative. So and the based or key narrative are an identitarian narrative. So it does offer us that opportunity to do that. So I, I do want to offer one little white pill on that. But moving along to our conflict questions, we have a lot today. Uh, we may set a new record. I'll, we'll have to see at the end of this. But as a reminder, you two can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Convalete option at Highly Respected Substack. That's at Highly Respected substack.com and make sure to sign up for the IQ summits while you're there. So I'm going to begin with a newcomer, uh, Appalachian. We will call him that. 
that's what he'll go. We're not going to call him Appalachian. We call him Appalachian. I, I actually, well, that's always an interesting north-south divide. Whenever I hear Appalachian, I'm like, no, it's Appalachian. Anyway, he has, he says, hey, Scott, two questions for you. Firstly, as someone looking to get into some highly respected foreign affairs grad school programs, how does a right wing white person market themselves for college admissions and a discourse for classes? Is it best to lay low and say nothing? Is parroting leftist ideas the only solution? I like to believe some programs want diverse intelligent opinions, but I was STEM for undergrad, so these things never came up. And you state how we that how we need educated right wingers in government policy making. How can we get right wingers through college without them hiding? It's actually best to stay low and say nothing. Uh, to be honest, yeah, I I know talk to people who are like in law school uh, and and of that sort. In law school, there is some need to make yourself a conservative to like get involved in FedSoc because there's all these conservative justices, especially if you're going to an elite law school and you highlight yourself as like a conservative one, then that leads to more clerkships and other things. But you also do want to lay low to a certain extent. Uh, foreign affairs might be a little bit different, but I don't think you should parrot leftist views. I think it's just that you don't go full on uh, <laughs> mask off in your views. So it's best to lay low and say nothing when it comes to that to that scenario. And it's even with like law school students. It's like you don't want to be totally the conservative pariah on campus, even if you're in FedSoc and stuff. There's some times where that's needed if there's like a mass left-wing protest of some sort and you stand up against it and you gain national attention for yourself. But... Otherwise, yes, laying low is the best way to strategy to go forward rather than uh, deciding to uh, post some base memes in your class. And so that's like the one thing. I think a lot of people don't want to go for that, but there's like a difference between parroting left-wing views and just, you know, not trying to cause a lot of attention for yourself. I think that's the best strategy to do when you're in a grad program. Undergrad, it could be a little bit different. I think you can take a little bit more risks and drawing attention to yourself, even in class. But you just have to be smart about it to not be permanently harmed by this. Because I know people who were involved in stuff in even the late 2010s and in college Republican stuff, and then they got targeted by Antifa. And this stuff, even though they didn't do anything wrong, the fact they were just involved in college Republicans and that Antifa really cared about them, that this makes employers like, well, what about this Antifa article from you about years ago? And so they still have to deal with that stuff. Uh, I don't think that may, it was a particularly bad thing in the late 2010s around the Trump time. I don't know if even if these guys, TPUSA people who are doing like anti-immigration stuff and going even further than a lot of these uh, college Republicans were doing in the Trump eras, are having to deal with that problem. But that is just something to keep in mind. So, um, yeah, but grad program, best to stay low and to not draw too much attention to yourself. And second is, secondly is how, here's going on with the questions. Secondly is how and if the distant right can remain religious. After seeing ads paid for by churches to see Jesus as a refugee immigrant today and have fingers wagged at me my entire life at mass, to donate to foreign countries while the local community is in shambles, it's hard to have faith in the institutions that guide us spiritually. That's just the Catholic Church. I've, or that's not just the Catholic Church. I've seen Protestant churches falling further. Can globalist religions and nationalist politics exist symbiotically? Well, they can exist, but I think 
Uh, and obviously, people are fervently committed to their beliefs, uh, no matter what their institutional churches are saying. But yeah, the the churches as institutions are fundamentally on the side of supporting mass immigration. And yeah, people can say, well, my individual pastor or priest doesn't say this. But if you look at the large major Christian denominations, there, you know, it you know, there was like, a, I think a Revolver article recently about this, where they're looking into one of the Lutheran charities. And it's like run by a non-Christian Indian woman. And they're, there's nothing even, you know, appeals to the Bible or stuff. There's just like full on, we need more diversity. And it's even the same with Catholic charities and all the things. Like the majority of groups that the federal government uses for refugee resettlement are Christian nonprofits. And Catholic charities are putting these people all over the place. And so like the Christian institutions themselves, and even if you look at the Vatican, you know, they are urging for more immigration. They're using the powers that they have to support more open borders policies. But that's just the institutions. I don't think that changes on what you have as an individual basis. If you still believe in what, you know, Christianity teaches or even your particular denomination teaches, I don't, I don't think that their leftism necessarily changes that. But I think that does, uh, I think the the state of actual Christian institutions, rather than what people say on Twitter, does limit the possibility for some of these organized efforts with along with Christian institutions. Like if you're saying that, you know, we're going to be a fully Catholic nationalist group and we're going to follow the, everything the church. And then you're trying to link up with the bishops and all the things, you know, the bishops are going to have a very different opinion about what uh, Catholic political advocacy should be from what people on Twitter are saying. I really should start saying X, but social media are saying. And so it does create limit limitations from it when all the Christian institutions have very different ideas on race and immigration from what people were saying. Does that mean that everyone leaves the churches and, you know, says we're not Christian? No. But I think it's just a clarification that you can't rely on Christian institutions or the major ones to support us in our efforts on the identity issues. And, and sometimes they're not only not going to be in support, they're going to be hostile towards us. And so that's just something to keep in mind. But it's an individual decision whether you decide to go to ch whether you decide that impacts your beliefs or whether you, you know, that determines what church you chooses that's a that's an individual opinion but ultimately the vast majority of white people are going to self-identify as christian or at least the ones that are going to be open to our politics are going to still be considering themselves a christian it's probably not a good thing for us if we were like you you have to abandon the church you can't be christian it's like we would pretty much alienate the vast majority of white people if we were doing that and it was all just over these woke ads that certain institutions are putting out. But I think it, there is a degree of necessary skepticism towards these institutions and how far they would go to support us is that they're clearly not in support of us and they're very hostile towards us. And I think a lot of people um, choose to ignore that and to pretend that actually what people are posting about on social media is actually the true church. And it's no, I think, you know, what the bishops are saying matters a lot. And it just shows that they're that those bishops and the institutions are not going to be really in support of what we're for for the for the near future. So moving along to all other questions that we have, I got a lot, so I gotta decide which one. We'll go with mystery. Mystery always offers some good questions. 
And so he asked, this is, uh, he said he has a couple more IQ questions. What do you think about ranked choice voting and similar pro third party reforms? I think I fucking hate them. <laughs> I actually really hate these. They're so stupid. No, anytime you see these elections, no, those are idiotic. They don't even really, they hurt Republicans because there's so many of our side, like middle class, college educated whites who are like, well, this Democrat seems really sensible. So I'll have them at my second point. No, it makes voting unnecessarily complicated. It hurts conservative candidates more than it does. I mean, anytime that there's been ranked choice voting in Alaska, it's always helped the establishment candidates. It actually doesn't help third parties or outsiders. It simply helps the establishment candidate because people are like, well, I really like this you know, outsider, but you know, the establishment person isn't that bad, so I'll put them as my second vote. No, it, it's... It's I, I hate it. I, I think it's stupid. They really we need really need to ban it. It's unnecessarily complicated. So going on to his other questions, like what what on earth are we gonna do about the jury question? With our peers increasingly being women and low IQ tribalistic types, totally unable to comprehend the ideal of Anglo impartiality, it seems like one of the greatest achievements of our civilization will soon be taken from us. That's a good question. The one thing uh, I've gotten to argue I've talked about this with some lawyer friends of mine. Some are very much totally pro-jury question. They truly believe in the uh, that people are fundamentally good and you can convince them. And one thing is that you do need to have the power to be able to convince your peers of a question in order to achieve anything. Is that if you can't convince 12 of your peers to take your side, like you, you have some trouble. <laughs> But I, I think the jury question is horrible, but you don't really have a good alternative because judges can be even worse. <laughs> so it's uh, uh, judges, you wonder, I mean, there's some cases where the judges are better. Like in the Rittenhouse case, the judge was way better than the jury. The jury took days to figure out that this guy is clearly innocent, was innocent. Well, the judge, like day one is like, this guy is innocent and I'm going to favor him. And the judge really helped to ensure that Rittenhouse was found not guilty. But, you know, it took a lot of prodding, even on the jury. But there are some cases where the judge would even be worse than the trial by jury. So I don't know if judge trial would be even better. But I think it may start coming up when it comes to urban crime. Judges are still going to send criminals to jail. For the most part, black juries hearing a uh, deciding the fate of a black criminal accused of attacking a non-black victim, uh, not so much. I mean, there's so many examples. There's a case. The most ridiculous case was in Delaware, where this black guy attacked on camera an Asian store owner and stole jewelry, and he was found with the jewelry, and he matches the guy on camera attacking him, and a jury couldn't find him guilty. <laughs> It's like they couldn't find him guilty. I mean, they didn't find him not guilty. They just couldn't find a, a guilty verdict for this guy. And you're like, what? <laughs> they have as much evidence as possible. I mean, they the only thing they didn't have is this guy saying, I'm guilty. But there's even cases where they have the guy saying, I'm guilty. And they can't find a, guilt, uh, a not guilty ver or, or a guilty verdict. And I've brought up this case a lot of times from San Francisco. From the Bay Area, these two blacks killed a elderly uh, you know a 72 year old white guy on camera robbed him 
had all they admitted to doing this, but then they said that their their lawyers said that they're too low IQ and they were having you know drug problems and uh, sickle cell crisis, and this apparently convinced enough jurors to that they couldn't reach a guilty verdict. They had literally all evidence possible. They even had the admission of guilt, and they couldn't find it. So a judge in that case, even a libtard judge, would find them guilty. But in other cases where it's harder to say whether a judge would be better, I think for federal judges, you know, maybe you end up with a liberal judge and it's like in a conservative area or, you know, there's some, it's a real wild card with the judge because it's just one person you have to convince. And maybe that one person has it out for you and is politically motivated. And there are problems with judges if judges... And a lot of judges are just elected and they're open to bribery in a way that we've made really have secured jurors to not be uh, to be more protected from bribery. That it would be a little bit tougher that you would have probably a little bit more corruption in the justice system if it was just down to the judges with a jury. It's more just stupidity rather than corruption or ethnic bias in uh jury selection but when it comes to urban crime and now you know cases hearing clearly guilty black criminals who are accused of killing a non-black and are attacking a non-black and them like having to hear the trial it'd be better if a judge heard it i you really can't trust urban juries anymore anymore uh but uh, for all cases I think a jury is still better. It's a part of our of our traditions. I don't really want to give it up. And I think for a lot of scenarios, I think even when it comes with civil lawsuits, I think it's better with a jury than it is with a judge. I mean, even to look at the Alex Jones case. I mean, the judge was like more was like more against jo- Jones than the, the the jury was. Even in Seville, the jury seemed to be more amenable to those guys than the judge did so it's all a case-by-case basis but when it comes to urban crime i trust a judge more than i do a jury and (laughs) i was told that if you're guilty you would prefer a jury if you're not guilty you would prefer a judge (laughs) so uh with these criminals in urban areas, that's generally they're guilty. So they, uh, and as an American public, since they're guilty, we would prefer the judge. But as the criminal, they'd obviously prefer the jury. So it's just on a case by case basis. But it's going to be totally undermined in the years to come. It's it's actually very depressing uh, because we don't have really the mechanisms to change it. I think we are really t- tied to trial by jury. It is in our tradition. We have all this media about it, and it fundamentally and we are fundamentally committed to democracy for better or for worse and it seems remarkably undemocratic to us to allow one person rather than 12 people randomly selected to determine uh whether you're guilty or not so um but yeah if i had to choose for urban crime yeah i would choose uh i would choose the uh judge the trial by judge rather than trial by jury now on to another question from jay I didn't hear you mention the pe- the period of Korean and Japanese horror popular- popularity like The Ring, Shudder, Ju- Juon. 
I'll like the Army Darkness and Evil Dead 2 movies. Well, this isn't really a question. It's just bringing up something from the IQ supplement. I didn't really like the Korean and Japanese horror, like the ring and stuff. Uh, there was another movie that was also that was remaking from that. I remember that stuff was being really big. I'm going to be honest. I don't really like Japanese Asian films uh, that much. I do find them uh, a little... Um, the straight, uh, I do find the American remake sometimes a lot better. There's something a little bit strange and off on them, so I'm not really that big of a fan of the Korean and Japanese horror popularity. I like the European horror a lot more than I like the Asian horror. Uh, some of the remakes, they were fine. I, I remember watching The Ring uh, as a kid, and like people were like, this movie's really scary. It's like, oh, you watch the video, and then you're murdered. And even back then, people were once again this is pre-internet and also it's just like pre-adulthood so like teens and pre-teens are able to believe this stuff like it's actually that film that videotape is actually real and so that adds a little bit more to the scary factor but yeah so i wasn't that big on it i could have talked a little bit more about it um i think that was just showing that that was moving away from the scream um uh, all the horror movies imitating Scream and instead they're remaking. It was part of the remake phenomenon that all these American films of the big horror movies of the 2000s were all just remakes. And there wasn't as much original content up until the very end of the 2000s and going into the early 2010s where it became like the Conjuring series, Insidious, um, Saw and Hostel obviously were exceptions to that. And then eventually the art house horror movies taking over. But also Army of Darkness. I don't know if I've actually... I don't think I've seen the full length of Army of Darkness. I remember it being really goofy. I like Evil Dead too. Also, it's just like a ton, ton of music I've listened to. have listened references Evil Dead 2. There's the famous Deicide song. Uh, well, not quite famous, but a big death metal classic. Uh, Dead by Dawn. Uh, Skinny Puppy Industrial Band always had samples from the Evil Dead movies. A lot of people had Evil... There was a ton of metal bands that were writing songs about Evil Dead, too. Uh, almost as many songs that they wrote about Hellraiser. Those are like the two most popular horror movies to write songs about for metal bands, for death metal bands of the uh, early 90s. So that was something to say. But that's my answer to that. Hopefully that was a good enough answer. We still got... Um, a, a lot more questions to go through. So we now have three questions from KMAX, and I know that it's three questions. We still got more questions after KMAX. So he asked, Hollywood just released a movie directed by Martin Scorsese with Leo DiCaprio acting at the Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie does the white man bad, Native American man perfect, and white man stole all the, their oil wealth. My question is in two parts. Will Hollywood, even as we are all onto them and their new woke, overly anti-white narratives, continue with this, even if they continue to lose money on these movies? Uh, answer, yes, because the people writing these movies and directing them are anti-white. And, you know, this is what wins Oscars and stuff. Killers of the Flower Moon is not supposed to be a blockbuster, and the fact that Scorsese, it's going to make a profit. You know, Scorsese could just drop a massive shit and film it, and it would still be a success and get academy award nominations so that's just like that's just the nature of this will native american indians be the new teacher's pets over magical people the hollywood focus on crimes they perceive of over 100 years ago matter more than crimes taking place right now will now be more white man native american indian man 
Indian perfect. Magical Americans are usually the victim they choose to use, but we'll see more of this white man, Native American man, perfect, and victims all the time narrative going forward from Hollywood. Uh, no, they're not going to be the new teacher's pets. They're just going to be alongside uh, magic and blacks. And we're going to see more of these movies about the anti or decolonization and pro-indigenous stuff. And you're going to see much more of the Indian stuff going forward. And it's just like looking at the how big the residential school thing which is also based on faulty evidence as well. How big that was in Canada. So there's going to be a lot more of this stuff. I mean, even the new Predators movie, which I talk about in the, in the horror movie IQ supplement, uh, is all about, you know, Indian empowerment and stuff like that. So you're going to see a lot more of the stuff. That doesn't mean they're going to replace them. First off, there's just far fewer of them. But they also represent that America was evil from the beginning. And, a, and another sin alongside slavery is what we did to the Indians. And they want to make that clear in the public's perception. So, yes, there's going to be a lot more movies about this, even if they lose money, because they're ideologically and morally committed to this. So, next question. He has <clears throat> a man on Twitter tweeted the following. Uh, I, I created this. He's like, there are white gangs that roam the suburbs killing dozens weekly, but we will never call the cops for obvious reasons. Scott, is this Tariq Nasheed talking or who really believes this? White guys in khakis and polos and rove, roves, uh, rove gangs in the suburbs. MSNBC and CNN somehow just somehow miss all these killings. What percentage of the left actually believes mass killings happen in the suburbs by whites and go just unreported? It's not just Tariq Nasheed. White people generally believe this shit. Uh, the person who tweeted that, because I quote tweeted him, was probably a white person or, you know, oh, some standard libtard. They generally believe this because non-whites, when they read history, they view whites as the most violent people on history. They view them as guilty of all this indigenous genocide and slavery and that there's something very threatening about whites. And there's so many movies that you need to worry not about the black gangbanger, but the white guy in khaki and, and uh, Oxford. That's really what you need to worry about. And that's further uh, cemented by like shows like uh, Law and Order, where the real rapist and murderer is always the upstanding white uh, preppy guy rather than like a black or Hispanic gangbanger. So, yeah, I, what percentage? I would say uh, far left, I would say over 50%. They generally believe that whites are com committing all the murders. The whites are more dangerous than blacks. And it's just the racist media and racist FBI that is fudging all these figures and that uh, they refuse to report on all these whites who go un unconvicted for their murders, which is just complete bullshit. No, it's actually quite common. They generally do believe this bonkers stuff. So third question. Yeah, we have got a lot. He wanted a sports one. The WNBA had a player, Candace Parker, demand gender equality for WNBA players to the NBA. To my knowledge, doesn't the NBA, WNBA lose money every year and only stay afloat because the NBA subsidizes them? Yes. I don't know if it's lose money, but they, they depend on the NBA subsidizing. I mean, nobody fucking goes to the games. They're, nobody pays for their tickets. It's a joke sport that's subsidized entirely by the NBA. To a normie sports fan, would this be a good and easy example of how insane wokeness and gender equality are? The math does not compute. The Greer rule must boycott the WNBA too, but that is not a problem. I don't think any Greer heads are watching the WNBA, so I don't think we have to worry about that. But yes, no, it's a good and easy example of wokeness and gender equality are. And they really are forcing this stuff on ESPN. You know, I watch ESPN at the gym. 
And, you know, I grew up watching ESPN as a kid. They never showed women's sports there. And now, and even I started noticing in the 2000s, they would try to include WNBA or women's college basketball highlights in their top 10 highlight reel. And it'd always be lame. You know, the the normal male sports would be like an insane tackle or an insane catch. You know, like, wow, or a slam, slam dunk. And then the the college ba- the women's basketball would be like a layup. That wouldn't be even that great. Like, Whoa! And it'd be... And clearly at that time, I knew that they're trying to fucking make me believe that this is uh, just as good as the male sports. I think for the common sense person... They generally don't like this stuff and they're not watching this stuff, but it is being imposed on them. Uh, and so maybe some of the sport, uh, rather than like, it is a, obviously a good and easy example of how insane wokeness and gender equality are. But I do worry about sports fans just fully buying this stuff. Sports fans, unfortunately, are the most high <laughs> up people on planet Earth. Anytime you tweet something controversial, you will see people with sports teams and bios come up to them. They're as bad as gender pronouns and bios. They come up and they're like, argue for the status quo, argue for the standard libtard line. They're like, man, Harry Tubman was a hero. George Floyd was a murder victim. Systemic racism is real. And then it's like Philadelphia Eagles fan. And we saw this again with like there's this uh, hockey, uh, there's this new hockey uh, controversy where a black guy literally murdered a white guy on the uh, on the ring. Is that he like kicked him in the face or in his neck or face with his uh, with his rollerblade and with his with his, yeah with his skates clearly uh, a deadly weapon. And they're all like, oh, it's an accident. And all these sports fans, sports teams, and bios are like, this is clearly a freak accident, man. It's just a part of the game. It's terrible what happened, but it's racist to think it was intentional. But anyone watching the clip can clearly see that it was an unnecessary move, that this guy is like doing like a karate kick against this guy, and it's like more than an accident. Um, but all the sports fans were agreeing with it. I even remember one time where a fan, where a where a player last year shoved aside a cameraman who was not even in his way. And he just shoved him because he's angry over a loss. And all these sports teams and bios came up like, that guy fucked around and found out. Like, get the fuck out of the way of my favorite black player. And it's like all these white guys doing this. And unfortunately, even though we've removed the NFL uh, from, we've removed NFL from the Greer Head Pledge, unfortunately, sports teams and bios uh, audience is still very psyoped, still like incredibly loyal to Ukraine. They're the ones who are getting emotionally uh, disturbed by the moment of silence for Israel. You know, it's really sports fans, unfortunately, by the official regime ideology, whatever it is. And I do worry that they could get into women's sports just by the amount of propaganda that they're inundated with on ESPN. Now, uh, another question. This is a long one. We've got a lot. This is from our new favorite, Fake Cell Eradicator, who may have the best name of any uh, kind of elite uh, questionnaire or questioner. Well, he says I can save one question for next week. So I will do that, but I will answer one of them. And he says, can we get a 187 IQ level anthropological survey taxonomy of, on the two main types of American Civil War commentators that seem to inundate Normie Twitter. The Mubbase Sherman, Glowing Eye Sherman, way down south in the land of traitors, rattlesnakes, and alligators types seem to be dominated by Marabuts and irony leftists. 
And two, to paraphrase Mr. Grove, the shitlib historians who constantly alternate between Reconstruction being the most utopian example of multiracial democracy in history, or that Reconstruction should have been carried out with Khmer Rouge, love brutality, and all that all of America's current problems can be traced back to the decision to not summarily execute every Confederate officer. And unfortunately, this is all the people who inundate <coughs> Civil War commentary. And both of them are very Reddit. I think the first type is very Reddit. And anytime there's like this like Southeast Asian girl who would dress up in like union uniforms and start singing those type of songs or playing those types of songs and memes. And it's like your family wasn't even here then. And it's all coming from people who were generally not here and like to uh, culturally appropriate the union for their own standards and norms and so you uh, really don't want those types of people the second is like yes the shitlove historians that you see all the time but it's just a general change of american civil war commentary is like going off what i was saying about lee lee is that we're just a different country now is that far fewer americans have ancestors who fought in the civil war and even for a lot of the south they're losing that connection to their ancestors or that strength of connection and how much they deeply care about it and that's allowing for the idea that the union was modern america like new multicultural diverse america fighting against white supremacist america in the south and they utterly destroyed them thanks to the help of immigrants even though these immigrants were all germans and irish and some like scandinavians they want to pretend that they're all like filipino and hispanic and indians not quite the case. So they're, they're cultural appropriating the Union and trying to claim that their victory, which was done all by white men who would definitely be all racist by today's standards, uh, they're trying to pretend that they were multiracial, multicultural, which they were not. So I think that's just a part of the general change in commentary is that throughout American history, there was this deep reverence for the Civil War. It was seen as a tragedy that we fought and killed so many of our own types, but then we reconciled and we had deep respect for both Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee and their great generals, and they were all great men. They just had a had a strong disagreement that we resolved through the Civil War. But now the Confederates are on the same team as the Nazis. They're absolute evil. And we should have executed all these Confederate generals and officers and then imposed a permanent military occupation in the South rather than the 11-year occupation that the South had. Well, it was more than 11 years, but 11 years post-war. And that's what should have been the case. But... Uh, that's no longer what it was, and they have moved on to a different way of Civil War commentary. I actually have a book that I have been meaning to read that I'll do, I'm probably, I may do an IQ supplement on it that really does depict the Civil War as multicultural, multiracial democracy fighting for egalitarian values of what the Union represented, which isn't really the case, versus the reactionary white supremacist South and I may do an IQ something on it and how it relates to modern Civil War historiography and the current popular consensus of what the Civil War was. So I may expand on that. It is a good question to talk about, and we will talk about it more. But the second question I will save for next week. Just remind me of it, and I will get to that question next week. And now 
I'm sure that these are all the questions. Once again, if I did somehow did not get to your question, because there's always a lot, I was very thorough into this. Just send me a, another reply and I will get to it saying about question. And it's also important for the Cod League people is like always make sure to include question in your message so I get to it. Sometimes I, I get, I'm so popular, I get, have so many in my inbox. So I sometimes don't get into all this. So now to New England refugee, we always like to conclude on him. And he's got two quick, he's got two questions. We'll make them quick. His first question is opinion on biker culture. I was born a Mayflower stock prep kid and always thought they were badass white guys, but still conserve base, cringe, or indifferent. Ah, it's fine. The, it's, a, it's a white thing. It is like showing that whites can still be intimidating and badass. Um, you know, it's not my really my type of thing, but it's, it's fine. Usually harmless. I'm not a fan of biker gangs, though, even though they do a lot of the reason why there's this missus or this fascination with them is that they are badass white guys who are making their own and doing their own thing. But a lot of what they're dedicated to is selling meth to other white people. So I don't really, can't really support that. But otherwise, uh, I understand the popularity of, of biker shows is it does show badass white guys who are outside the system doing their own thing. It's the same reason why people like Viking shows is they do like this white outlaw. And same with Mafia. But unlike with Mafia or even the Vikings, which is the ancient past, they are showing ultimately what are old stock foundation Americans engaged in this and there is a certain appeal to it. And I would say it's mostly positive, the fascination with it. But um, even with Sons of Anarchy, they decided to not be accurate about what the biker, how the biker game made money. They're like, oh, they just sell weapons as that was going to be uh, more um, acceptable than what they really do, which is dealing meth. And they're generally dealing meth to other white people. And so for that, they're uh, not very good. You know, we're not pro-drug dealers. We're very anti-drug dealers. But other side, outside the, the of how they make their money, the culture is interesting. It is fascinating. It presents an alternative to what the establishment norm is. But um, we shouldn't quite see biker gangs as base because ultimately what they're doing is selling poison to their own people. Outside of that final show, our final thing is about another show. His opinion on the show, House of Cards. I like to watch it when it was first was out. It got wacky as time went on, but I thought, thought, thought the first couple seasons were all well done. Did it capture the aura of pre-Trump Washington? Um, it captured the aura of what pre-Trump Washington thought of itself, but it was not really what pre-Trump Washington was. All these people, so many idiots in this city thought that they were in House of Cards and what they did was important, but it's really just a joke. People, it's a cliche to say, but yes, Veep was more accurate of what Washington was like than House of Cards. House of Cards, people are just too dumb. They're not actually having as much power as they think they do. But it really provided the image of what Washington wanted to think of itself and what they do to the rest of the public. But it wasn't really the case. I thought the first season was fine. Uh, later on, I got more lip-hearted and uh, trying to make... Um, the wife more uh, like like you should see her as more important and stuff. I remember when they were having the build up to a war with Putin, and they were like, "We we can't we can't forego our libtard values. We have to go to war with with the Putin character." And so there were funny elements like that in the show, 
But I don't know. Compared, it, you know, it's probably not as much woke stuff as like some newer TV shows. And it's ultimately fine. But when it first came out, literally everyone in Washington, D.C. was obsessed with it. And they all thought that they were in the show. But in reality, they were not. They didn't have this type of power. There's a lot more incompetence and stupidity involved in Washington, D.C. than a lot of these people want to admit. And if you really want to understand Washington, D.C., it's to watch Burn After Reading, which shows how the deep state and like the administrative state operates. And it's generally really stupid and incompetent. And Veep, which once again shows a lot of stupidity and incompetence. It's not quite the Machiavellian power politics of House of Cards. But it's an ultimately, it's an okay show. It was entertaining. But that's it for Highly Respected today. We're going to have more great content coming up later this week with, of course, a highly respected IQ supplement and a highly respected column. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.